Hey, this is Dave Pryor. Welcome to Leading Agile Sound Notes. This is going to be a very special kind of an interview, a new kind of interview. I've not done one like this before. So hopefully this will all work out okay. But JJ Sutherland has taken some time out of his day to talk about a topic with me. So JJ, thank you for carving some time out for this. Thanks for inviting me. So JJ is the chief product owner for Scrum Inc. He's also a certified Scrum trainer, as am I. And we ran into a situation where, or I ran into a situation where a former student came back to me with a question based on something that had happened in one of my classes that was sort of at odds with something that happened with with one of the classes that his counterparts took with JJ. And The reason that I want to talk about it is one, because I want to explore it, but two, because I have a feeling that we're going to end up on the same page and, or very close to the same page. And I just kind of want to see where it goes. So the topic is how much of what a team says they're going to do in a sprint should they actually get done? And I've long time, for a long time, been pretty super extremely hardcore about it has to be a hundred percent commitment. And I refuse to use the word forecast because I had worked with a lot of teams that never did what they said they were going to do. Um, and I think my opinion is probably too extreme, but JJ, where do you stand on that whole topic? Where I think the confusion, uh, from your colleague came from is what I do. I do think that everyone, you should commit, you know, you should forecast and commit, uh, to completing what you bring in in sprint planning. But what I also teach is that I encourage teams to measure how much they're interrupted during a sprint. And then, oh, and you just like with yesterday's weather, you know, when you decide how much to pull into the sprint, set aside a certain percentage of the team's capacity to deal with interruptions. Let's say you're interrupted, you're, you're, you're the you know, you, your team can do 100 story points every sprint, and, but you're interrupted for 20 story points worth of work. So instead of bringing in 100 points uh, into the next sprint, you bring in 80 points and you allow a 20-point buffer that you can fill as interruptions come in. And what I also recommend is that you put the product owner in front of that buffer. So someone from sales or the CEO or whoever comes to the team and says, hey, I really need you to take care of this right now. And the product owner can say, oh, that is really important, like a big customer is down, or that's something we really have to take care of right now. And he can put that in, prioritize it, the team estimates it, and they put it into the backlog, using up part of that buffer and burning that buffer down. Or the product owner might say, you know what? That is important, but it's not important enough to interrupt the team this sprint, so I'm going to put that into the next sprint. Okay. And and then what the pattern and the or if it's you know it's really low priority and don't bother the team at all, put it in the backlog, but it's gonna be the bottom of the backlog, we'll never do it. And then what I then say is when that buffer overflows, when you have emergencies come up, you abort the sprint. And you oh, really? stop yeah, you stop doing what you're doing and then replan for the rest of the time left in the sprint. Because in my mind, there's nothing worse than uh, a team that's drifting into failure. And like, there's just too much work to get done, or yeah. whatever, and no one does anything about it. Okay, because there's nothing more demoralizing from my point of view. So, so in terms of that buffer getting kind of overflowed, there's no kind of whip limit to just say, "Well, listen, it's already full. You're gonna have to wait till the next sprint." Yeah, you either wait till the next sprint, or you say, "Okay, is important enough that we're what are we gonna pull out of the sprint?" Ah, okay, okay, okay. So that's it's what's interesting to me there is the way you talked about it because I think I get to a similar place where I I had one team that was interrupted every single sprint. Mm-hmm. The site that they managed, the thing was like put together with string and, and whispers <laughs> and it fell apart right. constantly. So I had them track how much time they were losing on average. 
Um, and one of the things that I encourage a lot of teams to do is to try to figure out how many, you know, if you start out with stories at the story point level, when you task that out and you estimate them in ideal hours, that the team also figure out how many hours of capacity they have in a sprint. Um, and I asked this one team to track how many interruptions they were having to fix the thing that kept breaking, and they would carve that out of their capacity. So in mm-hmm. the same way that you're leaving that buffer yeah. for unexpected work, I'm saying we have X number of hours for when the thing falls apart. Right. I mean, the other thing, I mean, I've done this with uh, groups like in a call center where everything's yeah. interrupt, right? And I had to say, okay. But instead of saying everything is interrupted, take 90% of your capacity. Okay, that's going to deal with the calls coming in. And then maybe 10%, which is process improvement. How can we make working together better? Is there better prioritization? Is there a better system? But you still have that chance, as you should in any Scrum team, to improve sprint to sprint. Okay. So that's... I also say they should never estimate in hours, but it might be a Well, okay, so, so why? No, let's talk about that too. Why? Because we're really bad at it. Okay. And also, there. first of all, you know, there's tons of research that shows just how bad humans are yes. at measuring in absolute time. Plus, what I'm interested in as a product owner is uh, acceleration of scrum teams. And if you measure in hours, let's say you're doing, you know, one-week sprints, you're never going to get more than 40 hours in a sprint. Or, or, you know, if you have five people, 200 hours in the sprint, right? But I want – you can get, you know, 100 points in one sprint and then maybe – but you want to – I really look at Scrum Master saying part of your Scrum Master job – is to make sure this team is accelerating by removing impediments. Yeah. So maybe in the first sprint you get 100, the next sprint you get 120, sprint after that, and then it continues to accelerate. Because that's really what I'm interested in as a product owner is the team acceleration. I don't care about so much about how much they're going to get done in this particular sprint. I care how much they're going to get done in six sprints. And are they going faster? So if you're trying to look at a team's health across a range of sprints, that's one of the metrics I'm guessing mm-hmm. that you're going to pay attention to is what percent is the velocity increasing from sprint to sprint. Right, exactly. And the other metric I do pay attention to is uh, how, how much have they forecast or committed that they're going to complete, what percentage, yeah. versus, and how much uh, do they actually do. Yeah. And you, I use that one saying, okay, what's the dysfunction there that's causing you to fail your sprints, to not complete and get working product done at the end of each sprint? Okay. I, and I totally agree with all that. I think I use the hours more on the side where the teams really are unable to figure out what they're capable of doing in a sprint. Um, mm-hmm. They task the work out because, you know, something might take one guy three hours and one guy one hour. I want them to more, have more of a level of comfort that they're not overfilling the bucket. Like you just said, 40 hours. And I would say, well, the average person in a 40-hour work cycle is probably only going to be producing valuable work for maybe, I don't know, five hours a day. Right. Yeah. Um, less probably. Yeah. And it's probably, it's more for me, it's more about them learning about that than it is about the PO knowing how many hours they've planned out. Like for, I mean, I, right. whatever they plan, they should be doing, but, um, yeah, I'm definitely looking at it from a product owner point of view of saying, you know, I don't care, you know, if they can get, you know, this many points done in two hours, yeah. they go surfing the rest of the week and they get all my stuff done. Fantastic. I don't care how many hours they work. I only care. Because when you measure hours, you're measuring a cost and you get whatever more you, me- more yeah. whatever you measure. So I only say I want to measure <laughs> output. That's so the that's, only thing I care about. Well, and so let's, uh, that's a great way to segue into a little bit of your background um, because your background is very before you became somebody who was teaching Scrum, very output driven. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about that? So I uh, spent most of my career as a producer and correspondent for NPR, um, about 20 years 
uh, since 2001. I spent most of that time. I'd spent about half my time in Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or Libya or Egypt, you know, wherever something was blowing up. And then the other half of the time I'd spent back in the States uh, working on different things. I, I was sort of the uh, – Spe- you know, the, the person, when everything was broken, I reported directly to the CEO. And so when anything was broken in the, in the organization, they'd have me go fix it, whether it was opening up the West Coast headquarters or merging the online and the broadcast newsroom or, you know, working on morning edition, the morning show, what, you know, whatever it was. And in 2006, I was covering, I think it was 2006, I was covering the Pentagon during one of those periods. And I'd just come back from Iraq. And my editors and I was talking about, and during 2006, 2007, there were well over 100 attacks a day on U.S. forces. Um, you know, car bombs, IEDs, you know, just, in, you know, Baghdad was a very loud place. And I came back and my editor said, well, what happens to all the stuff that's blown up? Like, where, where does it go? <laughs> Sounds like, like a totally NPR question to ask. <laughs> I don't know. Let me go find out. And I found it and it, and it, and it went to the Red River Army Depot okay. in Texarkana, Texas. And so I went there to see what they were doing. And I ran into uh, the commander. There's only one uniform at the base. Everyone else is a civilian worker. And this is one of those things in Texarkana. It employs, you know, thousand people or so but, you know, if it shut down, it, it's sort of the, end, the economic engine of the town. Right. And in the beginning of the Iraq war, the Pentagon was going to shut it down because they could fix three Humvees a week. And they're getting 100 attacks a day. Yeah. They're like, we're going to shut you down, outsource it to Oshkosh, uh, privatize it. You know, you guys can't do it. And so the, the commander of the base at the time went to Ford, went to uh, GM and said, well, how do you do it? And what he did was he implemented a lean production line into the Humvees, into the wow. Humvee repair facility. And so what you go there and you can just see blown up Humvees. I mean, East Texas, there's a lot of space and you can see just blown up Humvees for as far as the eye And Texas see. is not, is a place that's no stranger to cars <laughs> laying around in the field. Right. So, so, and so what they did, instead of fixing the Humvees, they actually disassembled them down to their last nut and bolt. And then they would reassemble new Humvees. So they're basically redoing Humvees with broken Humvees pieces yeah. as the thing. And they went from three a week to over 40 a day. Wow. And they had they used exactly the same people. There was no And they're now staff. the town heroes and their statues yeah. built in their honor somewhere. And so I called up my my father, Jeff Sutherland, who invented Scrum back in the early 90s, and I said, "I think you might be on to something with this process improvement <laughs> stuff." <laughs> Because it just blew my mind to see, and these are not highly educated people. These are people, you know, high school education, working in you know basically a factory, you yeah. know, an assembly plant their entire lives, and just by changing how they worked, they improved. I don't know how many thousands of percent that is, but a lot. Yeah, and that was like that was when I really started to get interested in Scrum. And uh, started using it in other places. Uh, I you know, did some stuff in Baghdad. I entered his daily stand-up at the Baghdad Bureau. Um, and then when uh, – really it was 2011 when uh, the Arab Spring happened. And what happened was uh, we had a couple correspondents in Cairo and they were just blowing deadlines. They were fighting with each other. Nothing was working. And so they sent me and they said, JJ, go fix this. And so I get there with a few more correspondents, and I land at the Cairo airport, and it's all blacked out. And you can't leave the airport because they have a dust-to-dawn curfew. And so I'm you know, standing in this, you know, uh, arrivals hall, and, and like, like Swiss tourists are sort of huddled, uh, frightened in the corner, and, you know, Arabs are, like, 
barbecuing in the baggage claim area and selling food. It was like <laughs> really bizarre. And I said, well, how am I going to do this? Because I knew all these people. I'd worked with them individually, but never as a group yeah. before. So this is a really big story. And I said, I'm going to try Scrum. It's the only way I think I can do this. Okay. And so I went to the hotel and I got everyone together. And I literally, and I, of course, I knew I couldn't say Scrum to these people. These are broadcast correspondents. Did they, had they heard of it before? No, they had never okay. heard of it. So okay. I just said, we're just going to, you know, let's track what we're doing. You know, so what do we need? To, I literally just took post-its up and started putting them on a wall in the building hotel the room. Building the backlog. Building the backlog. What do we need to do today? Okay. All right. And, and, you know, it might surprise you to know that broadcast correspondents have egos. <laughs> and they don't play well together a lot because they see each other as competition. And so – but just making the work visible, all of a sudden within a day or two, they started collaborating. Wow. Oh, you're going to do that? I'll help you with that. You can use my interview from this for this piece. And then we we ran 12-hour sprints. We had – you know, every 12 hours for morning edition and all things considered, we had to put stuff out. It had okay. to be done. And by done meaning it went on the air. Yeah. This is one of the things I never I can understand about software engineers. You know, like, well, it's done, but not tested. And, you know, in, but that was, I mean, <laughs> just as a quick aside, when I read the book about how like Ira Glass's team produces all their stuff, done for you guys, done for anybody in radio is beyond what software. I mean, done is, it's actually done live. We're producing it live. Yeah. We're, it's scary. It, it's scarier than software. <laughs> But also at 4.06 and 30 seconds, every day in Washington, a red light goes on and Robert Siegel better have something to say or people get fired. Yeah. And it's the whole world that's listening. It's not just yeah. like, you know, a it's, couple guys beta testing something. No, it's 15 million people. Yeah. That's a and so, big and stage. I just did that, and all of a sudden, and we had retros. I was like, and, and we had, you know, my, my impediments might have been different. It's like, oh well, Corey Flintoff <laughs> and his reporting crew got picked up by the secret police, so we got to go get them out of jail, yeah, you know, or or whatever. But it's the same thing, and that's what really convinced me, you know, that Scrum is universally applicable across domains. Like, yes, it's rooted in the software world, yeah, but I've used it now in certainly in journalism and uh, producing new shows and writing a book and marketing departments and HR departments and legal. I mean, sort of this to me, that's what's really interesting about it. What I think, you know, where Agile and Scrum are right now is sort of at a tipping point where it's going beyond. Well, yeah. And so that's that's the thing I want to ask you about. Like somebody who's used it all these different areas, when you get the people who are like, well, it's just for software. I mean, what are the most consistent points that you wish everybody got like this is no matter where you're from or what you're doing this is what it's going to fix for you what it's going to fix is it's going to i guess the the, the problems in any you know corporation are usually the same i'm sure you see the same thing no priorities uh changing priorities no ability to deliver you know they sort of have plans and they you know it takes them six months a year to deliver anything um and you know and i say you know that has nothing to do with software that has to do with the business. That right. has to do with your choices as leadership. And if you can't fix those, you're going to go out of business. Someone's going to disrupt you in a way that you cannot respond to. Yeah. And what Scrum is going to do is going to force you. It is a, is a mechanism to make sure your priorities are clear, to how, figure out how to get backlog to teams of stuff to do. And also it's going to deliver working stuff, finished product, whether it's a, uh, a marketing campaign or whether it's a, a iPhone app. Yeah. You're going to get stuff done every week or two and you'll be able to see and you put it out in front of customers and then see, okay, am I going the right direction? And one of the things I really say to, especially to people who are really resistant is 
what, how many times have you worked on something for six months and then it turns out the marketplace didn't want it? Yeah. And that happens all the time. And so I said, it's a risk mitigation. You can start doing this and finding stuff out. If you go down the wrong path, you've only gone down it for a couple of weeks. And so you can then tack and change. And I think that's what agility in the business sense really is about is how can we reduce the cost of changing our mind? Yeah. And getting new information in and saying, oh, let's respond to that. And the people who respond to that more quickly are going to win. Now, do you think, I know you've got a lot of experience working with folks on the military side of things. Are they adopting this more and more, or is this just part of that culture of being adaptive in the field that, that is continuing through? Uh, it depends what part of the military. Okay. I mean, there's a very interesting paper um, about uh, how General McChrystal, who was the commander of special forces in Iraq and then was the commander in charge in Afghanistan before he let some subordinates mouth off about the president and got fired. But um, what he did was was happening in uh, the military is there are something like I don't know, 18 or 19 different intelligence agencies in the United States government. And they're all reporting, like some in the Pentagon side and some in the civilian side, the CIA, the NSA, you know, all these different things. And they're all reporting up in their different silos from Iraq back to Washington. And then there, all these decisions would have to be made. And then they would um, have to – then the orders would come back down. And that took weeks. And so what was happening was the you know, al-Qaeda, the terrorist cells, were you know, iterating and changing and adapting faster than Americans could change their minds and, and uh, you know, internalize the new uh, data they were getting. And so what McChrystal and Petraeus did was he said, you know what? We're having all these people. We're going to have the satellite guys, the NSA, the CIA, the State Department, FBI, whoever, all on the same team with the special forces people who are going out every night doing raids. Okay. And they would go out that night, come back with the information, and in that cross-functional team, then come up with new targeting based on the intelligence they just gathered and then sent them out. And it took them about two months to break the back of al-Qaeda in Iraq. So what about the trust, though? Because they used to have to wait for the answer from the folks upstairs or back in the States. Well, in this case, we were losing a war. Okay. So the United – The trust was sort of off the table, yeah. (laughs) And so what do you think happened after they won the war in Iraq? Or not won, but, you know, staved off complete disaster. I, you tell me. I'm not even going to go into this right now. They disbanded all of the teams. Okay. Because <laughs> that's our the right structure thing. back in Washington wasn't incented to win wars. It was incented to build power. And, uh, and, and one of the things – there was this interesting article in Joint Forces Quarterly when they did a sort of an after analysis of it. And they said what happened was it was the – and this is just like Scrum. What happened was there was the handoffs between teams – And the words they used was caused an organizational blink. And that was where everything fell down and where the enemy could operate easily. And when they got them, so there weren't these handoffs was when they could actually waiting for their moment. Okay. So, but you've got these people who've learned to work together as a cross-functional team and they've gone through forming, storming and norming. But at a certain point, and you talk about a sustainable pace, a lot of those folks, they need to roll out. I mean, you're going to have to switch them out for other people and, and, and break down the teams. Do you think that there's a way to be able to switch people in and then send folks home and maintain that consistency? It's hard. I mean, because stable teams is, you know, as we all know, stable teams are, the best teams. Yeah. But what I would say is you don't, what the army was doing was, and this happened over and over, where there'd be like a unit that had been assigned in, you know, somewhere in Iraq and they'd come out for a year 
and then they're going to get deployed again. Instead of being sent back to Iraq, they'd be sent to Afghanistan. Or they never, never send them back to the same place. So what I think helps on teams is if you need to switch people out, you switch people out one or two people at a time. Okay. You, you don't do it all at once. Okay. And that way you can at least maintain that. Now, so they've got these guys completely disbanded and they've lost all that learning. And they're yep. going to have to ramp all that up again in the future. Yeah. Is, is there any parallel that you see between that and what we're doing, what we're seeing in business right now? What I do see sometimes in – I'm thinking of one large fin, you know, financial company right now off the top of my head – is that when businesses have an emergency, often they will switch to an agile approach to address the emergency. Sure. But if they don't fundamentally change their corporate structure, as soon as the emergency is over, everyone will go back to the old way of doing things. Because the structure is set up to reward silos and people who build silos and have their own little empires within their corporations. And the same and so, within the military as well, right? Yeah, exactly. It's the okay. exact same. It's a human behavior pattern. Okay. And so unless you change that structure, like um, the CEO of Bosch, we were working with them. And he was on a panel uh, with Jeff and just talked to uh, one of my colleagues, Joe Justice, a lot. And he was hearing this kind of stuff. And he said – so what you're saying is that because I have all these individual bonuses, everyone's bonused individually, I'm incenting the wrong behavior. Because his problem is, is I look at Bosch and I see you know, Bosch Germany uh, you know, trying to optimize for just Bosch Germany and Bosch Americas just optimizing for Bosch Americas. And no one's thinking about Bosch as a whole. And so they're sub-optimizing locally. And so what he actually did is he abolished all individual performance bonuses across all, what, 300,000 people who work at Bosch. And he said, only team bonuses. Wow. So, okay. So that's a really good example of a place that's done that. And I'm assuming it's yeah. had a positive impact. Yeah. Well, it's been, he did it last year. I mean, we'll okay. see. I okay. mean, we're still in contact with him. We'll see what, what, what's happened. Wow. So I was listening to uh, an interview this morning on NPR and, and they were talking about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the guy who was speaking was talking about how all the problems with the healthcare system, he was actually tying it back to Frederick Taylor. And the work that he did with figuring out, mm-hmm. you know, people and factors and efficiencies and mm-hmm. stuff like that, just the right. same way that we all blame everything on him as well. <laughs> I'm wondering how long do you think it's going to take for that stuff to evolve out of our system, whether it's military or, or you know, private businesses or whatever, before we start to treat people not like these, I'm just going to bonus you and screw everybody else. You must be better than them. You know, right. when does it get to the team thing? When do we start to look at the whole, how long before we mature past the dysfunction that was bred into us. Well, what I'm seeing now, I mean, first of all, in just healthcare is like the best healthcare in the United States is someplace like the Mayo Clinic, where they okay. have a cross-functional team of doctors who deals with each patient rather than specialists. So like each of their specialists, but they're all on one team talking to each other. Okay. But then what I'm seeing in the business world is the people who aren't doing this, they're going, well, Amazon's going to destroy our business. And it's not, you know, just the bookstores, it's the shipping companies. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's everybody. It's the hardware stores. You know, it's sort of how do we do this? And so um, I'm seeing a lot of companies feeling that they have to change. Otherwise, one of the the companies that does this, uh, like Google, will just take away their business. I was at a banking company uh, a little while ago, and they said their biggest fear is that Google would take over the interaction between uh, the client relationship. And they would just be the stupid regulated bank in the back end. Okay. And, there, and so I think that fear is driving a lot of this and that 
people and organizations really do want to change. The problem is, is they'll use this as, oh, we're agile now. And it's like just a buzzword. And I think the biggest danger to Scrum and Agile is bad Scrum and Agile. (laughs) (laughs) So that means they went to the wrong store to buy the Agile. Right. They should have gone to the other store with the better Agile. And it's it's just sort of – because then you get this – oh, well, we tried Agile and didn't work. Yeah. Rather than, well, we didn't actually try Agile. We changed a couple of things. Oh, retrospectives. Ah, we didn't do that. Yeah, we did our daily send-ups once a week. Right. Yeah. So I, that, I want to pause for a second and ask you one question about that. So, and we haven't talked a ton about this stuff in the interview, but you're somebody, I mean, you've got a lot of prestigious awards for journalism. You've been, you know, in the field of battle, um, not, not to mention the video game stuff that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. But when you're in a classroom and people are like, well, yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. And you ask them questions and you realize they're not even doing it. How, I mean... <laughs> If it's me, I'm like, seriously? Like, what's the, what's what's wrong with you? How do you kind of hold it together when that happens? Uh, you got to meet people where they are. Okay. You know, and um, and sometimes I'm better at it than others. Okay. Uh, without a question. But it's, if I'm trying to help someone see the world in a different way. Yeah. I've got to put myself in their shoes. And okay. just because... You know, I've been shot at or blown up or whatever. Or won a Peabody Award or a Murrow Award or whatever. Whatever. Doesn't make their pain less real to them. Yeah. And so it's it's like when you're you're talking to a – like my daughter fell down the stairs this morning and scraped her cheek, right? A a nothing. Yeah. Not to her though. Not to her though. How old is your daughter? She's three. You know, she's not like 18. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, to, to her, it was a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so it's figuring out and saying, you know, and me saying, ah, oh, it's just a scratch. That's not going to help her. Yeah. You know, so, and, and but, so that's but what I, I try to do. Doesn't it give some, pers- can it give perspective to somebody who was working at a company when they're like, well, it doesn't work because of this or it doesn't work because of that? Um, Sometimes I feel like I almost want to shake them and be like, look, if this is the biggest issue that you're having, you're doing really, really well. And don't stress about this so much. Or like Mike Cohn said to me when I took my class, you're not doing it. You have to go back and do it this way. Do it right to see if it's going to work first. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I do tell – I mean, I tell those the stories that I told earlier in the interview in my classes. And I'm just like, you know – Usually it's not hard, and the problems are always the same. It's They're always the same. It's, you know, it's yes. you, can't, you can't have priority because there are too many interruptions. Yep. People are treated like machines. They're not allowed uh, to do this or that. <laughs> yeah, they're always the same. Yeah, and so and I just look at them. I said, they said, well, we can't do it. I'm like, or like testing. That's a big thing. It's like you know, we can't do automated testing and continuous deployment, like in the software business. And I said, listen, I am not a tester. I couldn't write a test to save my life. Right. But you know what? I read Google's book about it, and they're pretty good. And they can do far millions and millions of tests a day Yeah, with one code branch and all this other kind of stuff. And if they can do it, Google is not made up of magical fairies. They're people, you know? And, and if you don't start doing it, someone in your business is going to. Yeah. And your competition is going to do it. And so – You've got to decide, do you want to put a Band-Aid on this and pretend the world's going to go away, or do you want to be like a taxi cab company when Uber comes along? Yeah. I, I always say you have to decide what world 
do you want to live in? The one that's yeah. broken that you know isn't going to get better or the one that might hurt, but you can actually fix. Yeah. And I also I'll say, listen, change is hard. Yeah. If you're doing great, don't do agile. Don't change. That's really – it's going to be painful. It's going to take a long time. It's yeah. going to re- reveal all sorts of dysfunction in your organization. Just like not falling down the stairs takes a lot of effort or riding yeah. a bike. I mean, you're going to get hurt a bunch along the way. <laughs> exactly. But the if you're happy with the way there. things are, you know, why are you in my class? Yeah. Wow. Cool. All right. So before we move on to the next topic, I just want to circle back for a second. So in terms of the sprint, we're both saying try to plan for as much as you can do. We, we expect the team to be responsible for that. And to plan responsibly. And if they need yeah. to leave time for stuff, they should figure out how much stuff they need to leave time for. Exactly. And there's a there's a paper that uh, Scrum Inc. wrote by Jeff and a colleague by Joel Riddle uh, that was published in 2014 at the Hicks Conference in Hawaii. And it's called um, yeah, Teams That Finish Early Accelerate Faster, which is what we found in one of the groups we work with is a venture group. Uh, we're advisors to them, and they okay. insist all their companies use Scrum. And one of the companies they're invested in is uh, version one. Yep. So all their companies use version one. So they have data from thousands and thousands of sprints and how all this stuff works okay. from all the version one data. And they found this very weird thing. If this team finishes their sprint early, gets all the stuff they planned for done before the end of the sprint and are able to pull from ready backlog from future sprints, yeah. they accelerate faster than if they jam the sprint full of, to 100% capacity. And so what this paper does is go through uh, eight patterns of how ways to accelerate your teams, ways to finish the sprint early. Because what happens, a lot of the pattern is a product owner keeps on shoving more stuff into each sprint. Yeah. Right? And But if you tell them, hey – if you back off a little bit and use some of these patterns give and you have ready back, to breathe, yeah. give them a little rule to breathe, they'll actually get faster more quickly. So I want to put on my PMP hat for a second and get all sure. sort of curmudgeoning and project manager. Then my assumption is that every team will plan less than they're capable of doing with the understanding that if they plan less than they can actually believe they can do, then they'll somehow magically get faster, which sprint after sprint after sprint is going to get them to a stage where they're actually planning to not do anything. First of all, anything can be gamed, okay. right? Any system can be gamed. But if you're measuring working product that's coming out of the sprint and they do you know, five things one sprint – and then they do six things the next sprint and seven things. This sprint. Eventually, they're going to be going as fast as they possibly can. Okay. And not too many sprints. And so what you say to uh, those teams is, that's fine, but we're, we're measuring output. And you guys are going too slow to meet a deadline or to meet market windows or whatever. So how are we going to get your team to go faster? Yeah. And let's think about this. Scrum Masters, this is your job. Let's work together to, f- to fix it because as product owner, it's like I care about stuff that I can deliver to my customers. Sure. And I want more of it. But I don't necessarily want more of it eight sprint. But if I can slowly accelerate – and then this is the other question. People say, well, is there a limit to acceleration? And my answer is always the same. Do you think Usain Bolt wasn't trying to shave off that last hundredth of a second? <laughs> you know, Because he knows. It's probably like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm just going to coast here yeah. now because he knows there's another kid in Jamaica yeah. saying, I'm going to go faster than Usain Bolt. Yeah. And if he doesn't keep practicing and getting a little bit faster, someone else will. Somebody else is going to be every – yeah, he's going to be getting slower. Wow. 
So, so in addition to velocity, then another metric is acceleration. Yeah. Okay. I think acceleration is because you can't compare raw velocity across teams. Right. Because teams are different. But you could, but, you could percent of acceleration. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Cool. So that's one of the metrics I use when I look at teams is how fast are they accelerating? Awesome. All right. Thank you. So now let's get to the really important stuff. Because sure. I was trying to get ready for the interview, and because you're somebody who does has done this stuff professionally, I wanted to be on my game. But <laughs> I went into your podcast, and I just got sucked into this wonderful minefield of rabbit holes. So the only person I know who's got podcasts out there that talk about Oingo Boingo, other than me, <laughs> <laughs> references to The Last Starfighter, which was great. So you've got – I mean, you've got a video game podcast – yeah, shall we play a game? Shall we play a game? Which, for those of you who don't understand what that's a reference to, you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> it's from War Games. And you guys, each week, almost it's almost always a specific game that you're taking on, right? Yeah, it's either a, uh, one game or maybe two games, and then we'll supplement it with interviews, like with people. Maybe we do a thing like What I Play, which is you know people you don't think of as video gamers but are. Okay. Uh, like, you know, writers or politicians or whatever. Okay. And so how much time each week are you spending playing video games? It depends on the week. Okay. Um, and when there's, like, we just did No Man's Sky. Yeah. And that took, I don't know, and we also did a review for NPR on that. So that okay. probably took, you know, 20 hours. And wow. I didn't finish it. Wow. For doing Fallout 4, I took a week off of work. <laughs> really wow yeah but to do um like this week we did uh kentucky route zero and an, an iphone game okay. um deus ex go nah, that took me three or four hours those two games so i mean my partner and i chris sullentrop my co-host yeah uh we, we sort of pick games based on our schedule like can we you know do uncharted four or is it better we do a couple iphone games this week okay because we're busy and of course, you know, I get the grand sum of like, you know, you know, the podcast doesn't certainly doesn't make any money. NPR pays us like a hundred bucks a pop. So, but not, not but <laughs> but you found a way to supplement your hobby with. I mean, like if if video games is something you're into, and also the recording yeah. stuff, then you found a way to build a life that allows you to have that creative pursuit be part of at least something that isn't going to cost you as much money. Yeah, and yeah, that though I. I Go I have purchased the VR, you know, the Oculus and the HTC Vive. But it's tax deductible <laughs> if you're making money off NPR on it. Yeah, so I it, I get a thirty percent discount. Okay. So so this is kind of the thing that I wanted to ask you about. So a lot of people who do what we do, especially who work in agile, who work in coaching, a lot of it can become kind of frustrating after a while because you feel like you're saying the same thing and people don't listen. And I have always found that having um, some other pursuit that helps supplement that and keep it creative and fun for you is a really important part of creating a balance there. Absolutely. I mean, I could not agree more. I mean, my, my wife and uh, my partner, and I were sort of thinking about doing that. And I was like, ah, I don't know if I have time to do this. You know, I travel a lot. I'm doing this. And my wife looks at me and says, if you don't do this, I'm divorcing you. Wow. That's very supportive. Yeah. Because she said, you are so miserable if you don't have a creative outlet. Yeah. That it's not worth it. Well, and so were you doing this while you were doing the NPR stuff as well, or did this? No, this I just started doing about a year ago. I mean, I've always played video games. Okay, you know, and I, you know, you know, the the thing that you don't really realize is in war zones. Most of the time, like ninety percent of it is just waiting around for okay. something to happen, and it's boring. And so I would play video games in Baghdad a lot. Okay, so 
I have so many questions I want to ask you about this. But first of all, when you're traveling, you travel with your own system? Yeah, I take a PS4 with me. You have a special case for it? No, and I'm, it just got banged around on my last trip, and okay. I'm wondering if I, should, if I should get one. Usually, I just put it in my backpack. I got a Pelican case for mine. Oh, is that? Yeah, I probably should because it's That's pretty awesome. Except they're always everywhere. like, is it a gun? I'm like, no, it's not a gun. <laughs> um, so how do you figure out, like, how do you decide which games you're going to play? Uh, Chris Solentrop, who is, you know, he's written for the New York Times. He writes for Rolling Stone, Wired, Kotaku. I mean, he, so he's, uh, he came from political reporting, actually, but he's been writing about video games for many years and is far more, you know, in depth in knowing that he's much more in that world. That's what he does professionally is write about them for a publication. Uh, so he usually says, Hey, let's check out this game. And then, we try to do the ones that a are interesting, or you know, it's Uncharted Four comes out. We're like, okay, that's going to be a huge game. We if we don't do it, we're it's a misservice to our listeners. Or No Man's Sky is another example of that. Like, we have to do that one. Okay, but mostly it's whatever we're interested in doing, and sometimes it's playing an old game. Okay, so you uh, guys have been friends for a while, I'm assuming. Yeah, we've known each other for 20 years or so. Because okay. when I was doing a show out of L.A., I partnered with Slate. Where he was the political writer during the 2000 campaign, I think, is when we met. Okay, because this is taking me to another thing, I think, especially with people in in the IT space, or at least in the Agile space, the collaboration thing, finding different people that you can collaborate with on different topics, um, you know, related to what we do day-to-day or if it's outside, that's also a big part of what feeds the creativity. I find. Oh, absolutely. I mean, collaboration, you know, uh, there are many, you know, I have a lot of ideas for projects that sit on my computer hard drive in a Word document that never get returned to. But the ones I work with other people on, I do. You know, it's a it's a discipline because you're committing. It's the, it's the team effect of you're committing to a team. I'm going to do this. And you feel that guilt. You feel that guilt. <laughs> And also you feel that joy when you do something really cool. Yeah. So there was a neat moment at the Agile conference. I was interviewing Ron and Chet, and I said something mm-hmm. about team members holding each other accountable. And Ron corrected me and said, no, team members don't hold each other accountable. They hold each other up. So I was like, that, that's a very positive and healthy way of looking at my dysfunction. So that was pretty <laughs> <Totally>. cool. <laughs> All right. So if people want to find the podcast... Um, Go to iTunes or Overcast, whatever your podcast catcher of choices, and just search for Shall We Play a Game? Okay. Uh, and you can follow us on Twitter at Shall We Show, and you can email us show at gmail.com. And it's an audio so those, podcast, correct? It's an audio podcast, okay. just audio. Okay. Um, if they want to get in touch with me, and I uh, tweet about all sorts of stuff, video games and politics and agile um i'm at jj sutherland or you can always email me uh, jj at scruminc.com cool and you've got there's some events not maybe not yours but that that scrum yeah uh, jeff uh jeff sutherland uh who is coming to the dc scrum users group in early september i want to say like the 7th or 8th of september um and he's going to be giving a talk on uh how to do twice the work in half the time which is his uh, and they can also pick up the book on Amazon, which yeah, yeah. and I've I, that that's the only one that you've co-authored together, right? Yeah, that's the only one I've worked okay. a couple on a couple others, but yeah, that's the one. That so that I'm on. gonna just go out. This I've read all Jeff's book. This is the one that I enjoyed the most. 
Oh, thank you. I found it the most readable and just, I don't know, it was just so easy to get through. So I'm really glad. I recommend that book to everybody. Well, I read all the other Agile books and I was like, wow, you know, these Agile guys are smart. But But they can't write. They can't write. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. All right, man. Well, thank you very much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Dave. It was fun talking to you. (laughs) Fun talking to you. 